You're listening to Together by AGCI. I'm Dan Arnold. Let's not waste any time and get right to part two of my conversation with TBRI training specialist and adoptive mother, Amanda Purvis. It, let's say we have a family that maybe adopted their child uh, when the child was older. I mean, it seems like it would be different because they've, they already have some identity about their race. Do you feel like the, uh, the developmentally appropriate stages that we're talking about here would still apply in the same kinds of way when, when you have a child that maybe did grow up in a, a, a more of a black environment and now they're with a white family? Does that make sense? No, I think that's a really, really good question. I mean, I think the answer is it depends, um, especially when we're talking about international adoption um, and kids going from like a predominantly um, all black environment or all brown environment even, and then coming to America where they're going to see lots of different colors. And um, one thing we know about kids who um, have experienced trauma and or been in institutions is that although they might be 14 on average, that means they're like six or seven developmentally. Mm. Or um, although they might come to us at age 11, that means that really they're more like four or five developmentally. Um, And so you're not going to hurt anything by, you know, having these conversations with them and starting, you know, um, at some of those younger stages um, and working your way up you'll know really quickly um, (laughs) where they stand and, you know, if, if this isn't resonating. Um, But I think it's so important no matter what age they come to. And I'm even thinking of, um, I love country music, which you can judge me as you may. Um, Not too harsh. I would listen. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Um, But I, I would listen to country music. And I remember about two weeks after he came to us, um, he said, um, Hey, Miss Amanda, is 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 it only white people who sing this music? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I I realized in that moment, like, oh, I am not giving him a variety of music that yeah. he's used to listening to. Like, this is not reaching his heart like it is mine right now. Um, and he was like, because I'm I'm pretty sure I haven't heard any black people singing this kind of music. Um, and so now I love that I get to introduce him to some black country artists, but right. at the time I didn't know, like, I wasn't like, who is, you know, I didn't know about Darius Rucker was, you know, right, like I right, needed right. to point him out or Kane Brown, like, but at the time I was like, oh, he, like this in his mind is white music and I need to <laughs> widen my circle a little bit for him, um, in order for him to feel even comfortable riding in my car. Yeah. Because even the experience of riding in my car right now to him is a white world. Like mm. he felt completely uncomfortable in my car because of the music I was listening to. So like when we think about the age of kids and that can be racial or not just, you know, at any time, like when we have older kids coming to us through adoption, um, even those things like the music that's playing in the background in the car, um, absolutely has to do with their felt safety. And do they feel othered, right? Do they feel like an other or do they feel like they belong, um, in our vehicle on the way to the grocery store? You know, we were just talking about what, what maybe you can do for like ages, like five to seven. Um, are, are there any other 
tips or yeah. things that you feel like that um, parents could really be using in that age group? Um, I think for that, um, it's again, we want to point, we can begin to point out stereotypes and we can begin to challenge them, mm. um, whether it be on TV or on a movie they're watching or in a book they're reading, um, those types of things. Um, and then continue exposing them to the importance of their heritage. Um, so if, you know, where they're from, they celebrate different holidays or that, you know, any of those things are really important for us to communicate, um, that like we're in this journey together. Um, and who you are is important to us. We're not going to just pretend like, you know, this doesn't exist any longer. Um, this is now a part of our family too. Um, and so bringing in their, um, cultural heritage is really important, Mm. um, especially at that age. Um, and then I think like the last point in that age is like just Again, creating those honest discussions, um, especially as they go, um, like as they begin to learn history um, and all of those things in school Um, or like in Disney movies, like this is a great age where like they're watching a ton of Disney movies usually if your kids are like my kids. Um, So like saying things like, hey, how come they're talking about Africa? Like Africa is all the same. Mm. You know, like there's so many different languages in Africa. There's so many different religions. There's so many different tribes. There's so many different, like, and in this movie, they're acting like everyone in Africa is the same. Did you notice that? Or, you know, and asking um, questions like that and just opening it up to dialogue. Um, And again, what that says to them is, I'm comfortable with having these discussions. Mm. I'm comfortable with thinking through the lens that maybe the way things are presented isn't always what's true. Um, And so we're really just setting the foundation for felt safety as our kids really begin to um, have deeper discussions with us as they get older. Yeah. And it can even be things like, like I remember the other day, um, I said to my son, we were watching a show and I said, why do you think they always played this music when the Latino character comes on set? You know, like, why does this music represent that character? Um, and, you know, just pointing those things out are, is going to help our kids um, think critically about the messages that society is sending them from the little nuances of background music um, to, you know, the way that they present Africa to the way they present hair or skin or any of those things. Well, I think it, it, it also, I mean, I would hope that it would force we as parents to also kind of put that critical lens on our world instead of just kind of accepting everything at face value or the way that we grew up. Um, are there some ways that um, you feel that parents can even I guess, increase their awareness of those stereotypes that we, you know, just kind of absentmindedly just accept and move on? Like, what what are some ways that we can kind of um, improve in that area? I think that the more educated we are, meaning that we're, um, you know, that we have friends that represent all of the races, um, that represent, you know, um, what our children look like, if we're listening to them, if we're listening to, like, we can't always listen to the same media. Right. We can't always listen to the same. So that when we're getting other people's perspectives, um, that's going to help us think, like you said, you know, 
outside of ourselves. You said, you know, TBRI helps you to think, oh, what happened to them? Or, you know, what are they experiencing right now? Maybe that's why they're behaving this way. Um, that That is this idea that, you know, we can think outside of ourselves. Maybe the way I look at the world isn't the only way. Um, and we can do that by um, experiencing other um, races. And so listening to people of different races, um, you know, listening to their podcasts, listening, you know, all those types of things, um, I think is really important. Um, and then I think just read, like, I'm a reader. I know not everyone likes to read books, but there are so many fabulous books out there. Um, and so maybe if you don't want to be a reader, you can find the podcast interview of, you know, different mm-hmm. authors or things like that. Um, and just, become informed, um, about what is happening in the world and how different people see it. I've seen, I've seen so much, especially lately, just because of the amplification of that uh, message of Black Lives Matters at the moment is I've seen so many, uh, publishing companies offering books either for free or for next to nothing, just to kind of get that stuff out in the world. And that's, that's such a, an encouraging kind of thing to see is that there really is a desire to just like, let's get these stories and let's get this information out there so that we can start to make those changes on a broader, on a broader level. Yeah. I I really believe that. um, And I'm speaking to white people right now. Like you don't have an excuse right now (laughs) to say, I didn't know, or I didn't like you have every available, um, Thing out. You have books you can read. You have podcasts you can listen to. You have free Netflix documentaries. You have, you know, like, so like Amazon Prime right now has all of these free documentaries that you can watch. You know, like there's so many tools out there for us um, to engage in, um, to learn other people's point of views. Um, and what I would really hope is that we're not just relying on books and podcasts and all of those things are great. But if, if you don't have black and brown friends, um, who look like your kids in your circle, um, I would encourage you to figure that out very quickly. Um, like, like we need real people. If, If I right now were just to be listening to what social media is telling me about our current circumstance, um, it's, you know, white people need to amplify the voice of black and brown people right now, which I absolutely agree with. But I have probably talked to 30 different black and brown friends of mine over the past month, and every single one of them has said, please don't be silent. Hmm. Please say something. Please do something. This burden cannot lie on us every time. I can't be the only one in a meeting bringing this up. I can't be the only one, you know, organizing this protest. I can't be like, we need your support. Um, And so if if I were only listening to social media right now, I wouldn't be doing this podcast and neither would my dog. Uh, (laughs) But like, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. I wouldn't have written that blog because I would have felt like, oh, I shouldn't be speaking up right now. Um, And I think that there is a hundred percent validity in the fact that we need to listen. We need to expose ourselves. We need to, but I also think that we need to support and speak up. Um, and so I think that there's a, a tough balance, um, that we're all having to figure out. And what every single one of my black and brown friends have said to me is you figuring it out and fumbling your way through it 
means so much more to us than you being silent Mm. and being afraid to say the wrong thing or afraid to, and and that really is the definition of white fragility, right? Like, oh, I didn't want to say the wrong thing or I didn't want to offend anyone or, um, and like, they're all saying like, this isn't the time for that. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, that's, that's certainly something that I, I feel like I struggle with even, even knowing that we were going to have a conversation about race, like, it, it it's hard to not kind of hide behind that uh, the fear of saying the wrong thing or not using the most up-to-date terminology for something for the fear of misrepresenting myself or other white people. But I think that you're totally right in that, like, you're just going to make some mistakes and that's how you learn and that's how you progress and move forward and, and become more aware of what race in American society, in our global society, honestly, like what, what that, what that actually looks like and how we can start to start to talk about it and, and communicate more deeply and, um, you know, try and come to, um, I guess an understanding of, uh, what we can do to, to begin to be part of the solution. Yeah. Yep. And I think like an easy way for us to do that is um, even just beginning like with identifying microaggressions. Um, If you're parenting black or brown kids, I guarantee that they and you have experienced um, some microaggressions. Mm. And so beginning to identify those, beginning to talk about those and beginning to come up with responses um, with your children that feel appropriate to them around those things. What are some of those microaggressions? Microaggressions in general are just these little underlying, like you said, you know, those, the underlying things that maybe we don't realize. Um, but for example, like for any of our kids, um, they have experienced some sort of object of curiosity, mm. um, right? Like, oh, like where are they? Like when they're little, right? People talk to us, not them. So where are they from or uh, you know, and what all of those things communicate is otherness, yeah. right? Like you, you don't look, you don't look like the rest of us here. So, you know, they're immediately that communicates you don't belong. Right. Um, and so though, like from those to even, I remember, um, when my son, he was probably four, um, and he was in the cart and we were at Walmart, which I feel like a lot of my stories start with, um, one time at Walmart, um, <laughs> which, which means that I should probably um, stop going to Walmart. <laughs> but um, I remember we were at Walmart and he was in the cart and I had stopped an employee and um, asked, you know, where's your packing tape? Um, and the employee had started talking to him um, and he said, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? Are you going to be a basketball player or a football player? Mm. And, um, and I, I looked at the guy and I just thought, huh, he has no idea that he just communicated to this little black boy that what you can do when you grow up is sports. Cause that's right. how black people become successful. Right. Uh, that's a microaggression. Now people can argue, oh, well, most little boys want to play ball when they grow up. Right. Or, you know, he's just trying to connect with your son and maybe those things are true. Um, but I looked at my son and I said, no, I think he's probably going to be a scientist or, uh, you know, like, and I just, I wanted him to know he can do whatever 
he wants, right? right? Like those aren't the two ways for him to be successful. Um, And so like that's an example of a microaggression. It's not racism out front in front of you. He's not saying, oh, only black people like are good at basketball or he's not saying those blatant statements. It's these little under the table. Um, another time again at Walmart, I remember um, a lady said to me, oh, where are they from? And um, my bio- they were all little at the time. And my biological son, who was the oldest, was about five. And he looked at her and said, we don't know you. And <laughs> it was just like his natural response of like, who are you? Right. Like, why are you asking us these personal questions? Like, and it was just like, you know, out of the mouths of babes. And I was yeah. like, that was a great way to respond, buddy. That's you know, the perfect um, response. And it is, it's this, I think as adoptive parents, we walk this line of wanting to educate and be friendly and, you know, wanting people to know and love adoption like we do. Um, but also protecting our kids' hearts and making sure they know and feel like they belong and that their stories are their stories and nobody else's um, and not an object of curiosity. Um, and so like pointing those things out and coming up with, you know, for your family and your kids, what feels comfortable? Um, you know, like for my daughter, like I have to, you know, we had to come up with a way for her to say, you may not touch my hair. Um, in a way that felt like her, right? right? Um, to me, I say like, please don't touch her without permission. And I can be that, you know, f- forward. Right. Um, for her, that felt like too much. And so, you know, she came up with like a little rhyme and a little dance that she did where like, she would like jump away from people and do a dance. And, you know, and she had like this little rhyme that she would say um, that said, you can't touch my hair without my permission. But it was fun and playful. And she owned that. Yeah. Um, but th- those are like those microaggressions, someone just touching your child's hair. Um, that is a microaggression. Mm. Um, it, we would not allow a stranger to touch us walking through a store yeah. or some, you know, um, so again, th- that communicates all of this stuff historically about what black people are to white people and that, you know, their property and that they can like, So there are these lines that if we don't know as white people, like when I see a a cute little girl with beautiful hair that I want to touch, like (laughs) it's, it's a natural, those people are not being racist, but as, as parents who want to empower our kids to feel like they belong and that they are beautiful and they own who they are, um, we have to start with those things. Um, I think the the most helpful thing for me um, is if if first, um, as a white parent, you're on this journey to discovery of like, what does this look like and what does this feel like for my kids and how are we experiencing it? And um, all of a sudden, you're going to get slapped in the face with all of it. Like if you haven't yet opened your eyes to it, um, then you're going to have like this really rude awakening of, wow, this is happening all the time for my kids, for our family. Um, and you're going to feel the weight of that. Um, and so the first thing I would say is like, when a situation arises, um, the first thing we have to do is manage our own emotions. Mm. Um, so that we make sure to keep it about our child and what they need from us. Mm -hmm. Um, so I remember, um, like my son came home, um, 
in fifth grade and they were learning about the Civil War. And he said um, when he came back from recess, someone um, had taped Confederate flags all around his desk. Um, And he was one of two or three black kids in his class. Um, And he had all these Confederate flags around his desk. Um, And he came home and told me and the mama bear in me (laughs) rose up, right? Like I was like, I was going to flip the car around, go back to the school, like demand to know who did it, what was happened. Like I wanted all the things, right? Like I wanted to do all the things to say, this is not okay. And I will not allow this to happen to my son again. Um, And so just to manage my own emotions was a lot. (laughs) Um, And so to just listen to him in that moment. um, And so just hearing what does he need from me, right? Like addressing their hurt first um, and not the person who hurt them. So if, you know, if they're five and you're at the playground with them and somebody says like, you can't get on the merry-go-round with us because you're black, right? Like we, the mom and dad and us like wants to march up to that kid and say like, here's what you need to know, little boy, or here's what you need to know, little girl. Um, but what we need to do is first of all, manage our own emotions, keep it about our kids, hear what they need from us and address them first, not the person who hurt them, address them first. Um, and when we do that, we want to avoid using the word different to describe our children. Mm. Um, because again, that implies blame. So we don't want to say like that person has a problem with anyone who's different, right? We don't want to say that because what that says to our kid is, well, you're different. And so yeah. that's why they treated you that right. way. So instead we want to say like that person has a problem with people who don't look like them mm. or that person has a problem with um, people who don't speak like them or whatever it might be. Um, especially like if your kids come home and they have a thick accent, um, that can be, so we, again, don't want to use the word different in describing our children, um, especially in these kind of critical moments. Um, and then we need to value our kids' input um, and work collaboratively with them to reach a resolution. Uh, it will be very natural for us to want to take over and fix the situation for them. Um, but what they need to hear in this moment is, you have power, you have a voice, you matter, and I'm here to help you. This isn't about actually educating other people in this moment. It isn't about talking to other parents and making sure they know how to educate their children. It's about helping our child. So what do they need from us? Mm. Um, And consider honestly how your own white privilege can allow you to have a different response than your non-white child, right? I can get angry at the park and not fear for my life because I'm a white woman. And that alone is a privilege. And so my son doesn't have the ability to get angry at the part because someone was racially profiling him because his life will be in danger if he does that. Hmm. And so even our responses to this can separate us from our children and communicate otherness. Um, if we're not really careful, um, I can be bold in my statements, um, because I am not going to be labeled, um, an angry black woman. Right. And my 13 year old daughter, 
she already is very aware that she doesn't want anyone to discount what she's saying because she sounds angry, right? So she's already had to learn how to filter what she thinks and what she needs so that she isn't put in that category of the angry black woman. Hmm. So we have to role model like different methods of response, right? And help our kids find their best fit. Um, how do they respond in a way that they feel more com- most comfortable? Um, and there's lots of different ways um, that we can help them respond, whether it's diffusing it, avoiding it, redirecting it, reporting it, ignoring it, co- like some sort of comeback. Um, you know, we can help them find what fits them best. Yeah, and you had you had mentioned earlier about how like race in your family is a constant discussion. It's it's something that doesn't ebb and flow. It just is there. And I would think that role modeling, especially with younger kids, I would imagine it takes just loads of time for that to really kind of become something that becomes natural for them. Yeah. And when they're young, like you're talking about, there's so many opportunities, right? Because they're saying like, why does that person talk like that? Why does Mm. that person walk like that? Why does that person look like that? Why does her hair look like that? Like, I remember I had one kid who was like really keen on smell and he'd be like, why does she smell like that? Why does she, (laughs) you know, like, like they're asking those questions all the time. So it, it ends up like race becomes a part of who we are, not the thing that defines who we are. And so if we start from a young age of saying, you're right, all of these things represent different people. Her hair looks different than her hair, which looks different than her hair, because all of us are made differently. Isn't that amazing that none of us have the same hair, that none of us, you know, all of those things. Um, So when we start from a young age, I think we just we have a much easier go at it um, in terms of helping them to understand um, that. The other thing I would say is um, if we begin talking about racism um, at a young age, we are going to put language to and label what's going on. Um, And the reason that's important is because when you talk to any person of color as an adult and ask them what's the first time you remember um, you know, some, an act of racism towards you, all of them will tell you a story. Mm. And what's really powerful, um, is that many people of color who were adopted into white families, um, will say they didn't know that that was racism until they were much, much older. And they learned about it usually in college. And so what they'll say is when those things were happening, I thought there was something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, and, So if we're not talking about it and labeling it, um, what happens is when those microaggressions occur, when they feel systemic racism for the first time, when they have an individual, you know, instance of racism, they will internalize that as I'm bad. I don't belong. I'm different. If we have not given them the, um, the language to say, no, this was a racist. That person was racist. That was a microaggression. Yeah. Um, and so I think many times, like as white parents, we feel like, oh, we don't want to talk about this because, you know, it's getting better and our kids are so young and they don't know that that, you know, that that lady was actually being racist when she asked, what are you going to be when you, you know, um, but they do. 
um, they they absolutely feel it in their gut. Mm. And if they don't have the words to say that was X, that was microaggression, that was systemic racism, then instead they say, I'm bad. I feel wrong. I feel like I don't belong. I feel, and it becomes about who they are. Yeah. And when it, when it, when it feels like it's tied to their identity, then that's even more devastating for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the good part is like, we're all just learning. Like there's no, like sometimes like when we talk about this, it's like, okay, well, what are the three books I should read? And what are the four podcasts I should listen to? And like, then will I be done? Like, then will I be prepared to parent transracially? Right. <laughs> and, the, and the answer is no, like it's a journey. Um, you know, like we're all learning this and what works, you know, like the response my daughter came up with for when people touch her hair is not going to work for your daughter. And it's not going to work because it's so individual. And so we don't want to make like this prescription, just like we don't prescribe how you do your faith, right? Like we don't prescribe what that looks like for you and your relationship. Um, It's the same here. Like, yes, we want to become informed. Yes, but mostly we we want to listen and we just want to keep learning together. What we find in research, um, like the three most important like racial identity resiliency factors is what they're called. Mm. Um, But the three most important ones are um, that there are racial mirrors and they're living amongst diversity, um, that you talk openly about race in your family, and that you trust and validate your child's racial experiences. Yeah, I think I would just end it um, with just encouraging all of us um, because if you're listening to this podcast, um, then you're ahead of, you know, you're ahead of the curve. You realize um, that parenting transracially um, holds this this other load. Um, I think there's like this invisible load of parenting um, black and brown children that exists for anyone who's parenting black and brown children. Um, and then we also have, um, as adoptive parents, this other invisible load um, of what it means to parent children that are not biologically um, our own. And so those are two really, really heavy loads. So I just want to say um, to all of the parents listening, um, we can do this. Um, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Um, he is, you know, his grace is sufficient. Um, his power is made perfect in our weakness. I tell my kids all the time, you know, I'm, I'm really trying hard at this. I'm not taking this haphazardly. Um, and if I'm doing the wrong thing right now, um, I didn't do it on purpose. Um, I, I really am trying my best, um, and I believe that God will meet me there. Um, and so, I just want to acknowledge that, like, what we're doing is really hard, um, and it's okay to feel like this is really, really hard and really, really heavy because it is. It's both of those things. This is hard, but we can do it together, and we have such a beautiful community. I just think that we're raising up a generation um, that's going to change the world. And the effort that we're putting in now um, is going to come back tenfold. Thank you so much for talking with me today and, and just sharing your wisdom and your experience. And I just appreciate your 
honesty and and just the way that you approach this with such humility and yet such strength so i'm i'm just so grateful to have had this conversation with you today same thank you that was the incredibly wise and insightful amanda purvis if you were challenged or blessed by what you heard today you can let us know at together at allgodschildren.org or you can share this two-part episode with your friends and family or both we'd love to hear from you and make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen Like Amanda and I talked about, race is not a conversation that ebbs and flows, despite the media cycles we experience. This is a conversation we want to keep having with you as we continue fighting against racial injustice. We hope that you'll join us as we all walk toward a more equitable world, together.